Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 6, and 16 through 18. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The Lord always adds a blessing to his word. Well, good afternoon. It is good to open up God's word. Let's ask God whose word it is to bless us and be with us. Let's pray. Father, would you please come and speak to us. Make this word that is alive and powerful, make it powerful to us for the changing the transformation of our hearts as we seek to live faithfully in your sight. Through Jesus we ask, amen. As we turn to God's word this afternoon, it is important for us, I think, to uh, be reminded of where we have been in uh, this series, we are preaching our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been for a number of weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it's important that we understand that the Sermon on the Mount is not just a collection of sayings kind of randomly thrown together, but is really a cohesive sermon. And Jesus has a primary point that he wants to make. If you look back at chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, you see his primary point. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' point in this sermon is to tell us that as his disciples, as those that are the the residents and the subjects in his kingdom, as those who are following King Jesus, we need to have a righteousness that exceeds, that surpasses that of scribes and Pharisees. And that, in today's language, means that we need to have a righteousness that surpasses your typical do-gooder. We need to have a righteousness that surpasses mere moralism and external rule-keeping that is so common in human religions, that is so common in the human race. In those days, there were the scribes, there were the Pharisees, who at times literally trumpeted their righteousness, literally announced it on the streets. And Jesus says, your righteousness, if you're one of mine, if you're one of my disciples, your righteousness must surpass theirs. And in this sermon, Jesus really is telling us that our righteousness needs to surpass in at least three ways. First of all, in its detail. In verse 19, he says that we need to keep even the least of the commandments. The reason he says that is because the Pharisees and the scribes like to pick and choose. They liked this commandment and not that commandment. They wanted to obey this one and not that one. And Jesus says, no, in the detail of your righteousness, right down to the least, you must obey me. And then he goes on to talk about how our righteousness is to surpass theirs in depth. And that's what verses 21 through 48 are all about. Remember, as we've gone through that section, we have seen over and over again that it matters that our righteousness is not just on the outside, but on the inside. It has to penetrate to our hearts. We can't be just external in our behavior. We must be righteous in our hearts. So it's not good enough that we just don't murder somebody with our hands. We must make sure that we don't murder somebody with our hearts. It's not good enough that we don't commit adultery with somebody with our bodies. We must not commit adultery with our minds and with our hearts. Our righteousness needs to exceed the Pharisees in detail, down to the least, in depth, our heart has to match our hand and our body and our life. And now in chapter 6, Jesus is saying that our righteousness needs to surpass the Pharisees in its design or in its direction. We must do what we do not for the eye of others horizontally, but for the eye of God vertically. Everything we do by way of righteousness must be done for the eye of God, must be done to be seen by the audience of one, Jesus and our Father in heaven. I'm calling today's message Christianity, Religion, or Relationship. 
Christianity, religion, or relationship. And here's what I believe Jesus wants to teach us in the passage that Bill has just read. We are called, each of us who is following Christ, we are called to practice our faith. We are called to practice our faith with sincere religious devotion. We are called to practice our faith with sincere religious devotion for the eye and for the reward of our Father above. We are called to practice our faith with sincere religious devotion for the eye and for the reward of our Father above. I'm guessing that there are some here who may stumble a bit in what I just said, particularly the word religious, particularly the word religion. There is a a misguided allergy in today's culture and today's church to the idea of religion, to the idea of religious devotion. It's misguided because the word religion is really a good word. According to Webster's, it means the service and worship of God. Nothing wrong with that. According to Webster, it's a commitment or a devotion to religious faith or observance or practices. Nothing wrong there, at least on paper. Nothing wrong there. But we need to explore this text to see what Jesus is really saying to us. And here's, here are the four points that we're going to look through. Uh, the necessity or the need for sincere religious devotion. The relationship behind sincere religious devotion. The motive for sincere religious devotion. And then the reward of sincere religious devotion. Let's, let's look at these four points. First of all, the necessity or the need of sincere religious devotion. And I want to just focus for a couple of minutes on that religious part of it. In the, in the text that Bill read, did you notice the word when that appeared a number of times in verse 2? Thus, when you give to the needy, verse 5, and when you pray, and verse 16, and when you fast. Jesus does not say, if you do. He says, when you do, because he assumes that these things are going to happen in our lives. He assumes that we are going to do these very religious things. We are going to be giving to the poor. We are going to be praying. We are going to be fasting. These these are expressions of real devotion to the Lord. And these are things which are, I would suggest to you, my friends, these are things that are largely absent in our world and church today. These These are things that people even as believers, do all too little of. I'm, I'm very aware, I'm very aware of my own heart, how easy it is to get caught up in a life in which we're, we're 
our, our faith and our ministry and the things we do are, are designed for the, the eye of others. And we, we, can, we can think about, well, let's, let's make sure that we're hip. Nobody ever accused me of that. But let's just make sure that we're hip. Let's, let's make sure we're cool. Let's, let's make sure we're stylish. Let's, let's make sure we're activists. Let's make sure that we are, we are missional and visionary and doing things. And, and in the course of doing all that stuff, we fail to do those things that are sincere, devotional expressions of love for Christ. We forget to pray. We forget to fast. We forget solitude. We forget silence. We forget time in the Word. We forget meditation and memorization. We forget that there are practices and habits of the heart that God intends us to be devoted to so that our hearts can grow in devotion and faith and love before Him. In the midst of all of our busyness, we're a bunch of Marthas running around with our heads cut off. And then there's Mary who's at Jesus' feet just enjoying her Savior. Which one are you? Which one? <laughs> oh, I have a hard time with microphones. All right. We are, we are, we are called... There's a, a phrase that Christians of another generation used to use. We are called to live devout and holy lives. Devout and holy lives. Lives given over to devotion. Now, don't get this wrong. This, this doesn't mean that we're called to be monks. It doesn't mean that we're called to monasteries. It doesn't mean that we're called to doom and gloom. No. Holiness, true holiness is happy. And true holiness knows what it is to celebrate and eat and dance and laugh and love and skip and, and glory and create and do all these wonderful, amazing things in God's wonderful and amazing world. Remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, ate and drank with sinners. There is, there is happiness in holiness. If you are holy, you will be happy. And there is holiness in happiness. There there is something holy about being happy. There is something holy about enjoying life. There is something holy in enjoying all the good things that God gives to us. So we are not talking about a mood of somberness and, and, and gloom. No, we are, we are talking about a happy devotion and yet... According to Jesus, we are to live a devout and holy life. And as I was thinking about this, it struck me that this is a consistent theme throughout Matthew's gospel. I just, uh, I just want you to, to track with me for a couple of minutes. As you go through Matthew's gospel, you will find in every single chapter... All 28 chapters, you will find at least one expression 
of religious devotion. So in chapter 1, we have the genealogy of King Jesus. So there isn't a whole lot there except that Joseph has a vision, a personal encounter with God. In chapter 2, we see the Magi kneeling and gift-giving in worship before the baby Jesus. In chapter 3, we see baptism practiced as a ritual of cleansing. In chapter 4, we see Jesus as an example of Bible memorization, meditation, and application. In chapter 5, we see reference to bringing gifts to the altar of worship. In chapter 6, we see Jesus command generous giving to the poor and priority giving to his kingdom. In chapter 6 again, we see prayer called for. In chapter 6 again, we see fasting called for. In chapter 7, King Jesus calls us back to persistent and devoted prayer. In chapter 8, Jesus receives kneeling prayer. In chapter 9, he comes back to fasting. You get any idea? In chapter 10, he tells us to pronounce benedictions or blessings on others. In chapter 10, there's the practice of hospitality. In chapter 11, there's repentance and prayer. In chapter 12, there's Sabbath keeping, a day of rest to interrupt the rhythm of our work and our busyness and our activity to be still. Chapter 13, we're exhorted to hear the word and mine its treasures. Chapter 14, solitude. Chapter 14, the habit of giving thanks before a meal. Chapter 15, Jesus responds again to kneeling prayer. Chapter 15, he gives thanks again for another meal. Chapter 16, he talks about the church and our commitment to it. Chapter 17, his disciples fall on their faces in worship. Chapter 18, more teaching on the church. Chapter 19, those who are single are said to be those who can be singularly devoted to him. Chapter 19, he pronounces a blessing. Chapter 20, we're called the humble devoted servanthood. Chapter 21, he receives the hosannas and the celebrations of the crowd. Chapter 21, he calls his house a house of prayer. Chapter 22, we're called to evangelism. Chapter 23, he puts his stamp of approval on tithing and giving. Chapter 24, prayer. Chapter 25, watchfulness. Chapter 26, communion. Chapter 27, he prays. Chapter 28, baptism. Over and over again, there is religious devotion because that is what God's people do. We pray. We come before the presence of God. We open His Word and bow our heads and our hearts before it. We read it. We study it. We hear it preached. We memorize it. We apply it because it's the Word of God. We are called. We are called to practice our faith with sincere religious devotion. If I, start, if I say this, I think you'll be able to complete it, many of you. There's a saying. It's so popular. It's so common that I think you almost have to try to find a, a chapter and verse for it. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship, right? It's close to the truth, 
but not the truth. Close to the truth, but not the truth. It would be truer to say this. Christianity is more than a religion. It's a relationship. It is a religion. It is a practice of religious devotion. It does involve spiritual duties and responsibilities when you pray, when you fast. These things must be done, but it's more than a religion. It's a relationship. It is more than duty. It is delight. It is more than habit. It is heart. It is more than posture and activity. It is adoration and it is worship. And religious expression, practicing our faith, is how we engage with God. It's how we get to know God better. How many of you were here for the communication series? And uh, what did C stand for? O. Open up. M. Make time. Make time. That's for our relationships horizontally. Can I suggest to you that these habits of the heart, these spiritual disciplines, are how we make time vertically with God. This, this is how we connect to him. This is how we talk to him. Now, now, that's the need. That's the need for sincere religious devotion. But seeing that need, we need to make sure we understand the relationship behind the need. Because if we don't, then our religion will turn to dust. Our religion will be hollow. So what is the relationship? Well, look at verse 1. And notice in this text how God is described. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 4, so that your giving may be in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 6, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 10 or verse 9, our Father in heaven. Verse 14, Father, verse 17, Father, verse 18, Father. There are 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount when God is called Father. That's more than the whole Old Testament put together. There are zero times in the Quran when God is called Father. Remember, J.I. Packer says, Father is the Christian name for God. Father is the Christian name for God. We cry, our Father in heaven. We cry in the words of Romans 8, Abba, 
Father, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So what what does this mean? This, This means that our religious devotion is is before one who already is our Father. This is, this is important. We don't do religious things. We don't practice religious things in order to make God our Father. We do these things because God already is our Father. Because He already has and does love us. Because we are already secure in His family. Because we are already the children of God. You see, we, if you do religious things in order to get God to love you, it will fail. If you do th- religious things because you know already that God loves you already, then your heart will flourish. We do not do these things in order to get God to love us more. We do these things in order to get us to love Him more. God already loves us with all of His heart. God already loves us with everlasting love. God already loves us with the love in the words of Ephesians that is, has height to it and depth to it and breadth to it. And Paul says, I pray that you would begin to know the length and the height and the depth of it. It is so great. It is so deep. It is so high. It is so broad that it will take you eternity to know how much he loves you. Eternity. So you don't pray to get them to love you. You don't fast to get them to love you. You don't, you don't do religious stuff because somehow or other you need to tilt the scales in your direction so that, oh, finally, I've done enough. God's going to love me now. No, God already loves you. God is already, if you're in Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you already are beloved. You have been adopted, it says in Ephesians 1. You've been adopted in the beloved one, Christ. In Him, you are already loved. We do these things because we're loved. We don't do these things to get loved. This is so critical because, as I say, If we don't begin with the love of God and the knowledge that in Christ we are already accepted and approved and delighted in and loved by God, then all of our religious activity will be frustration and futility. Because how much do you have to do to get Him to love you? And you know about, I don't know about you, I do know about you, I know about me. You can do the right things this morning and by noontime have blown it big time. You you can pray. You can pray, but then in the middle of your prayer be interrupted by sinful thoughts. How much, how good is good enough? How, How many prayers? How many offerings? How many gifts? How many tithes? It's an exercise in futility to try to earn the love of God through our religious observance. Thankfully, we don't have to. Thankfully, we don't have to. Because as we're going to see, there is someone else who has earned the love of God for us. And if we will love Jesus and trust Jesus, 
we will be safe and secure in that love. So we need to see the necessity for sincere religious devotion. It's expected of us when you do these things. We need to see the relationship behind that devotion. And third, we need to see the motive for that devotion. Go back again to the text, verses 1 through 3. Beware of practicing, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Beware of this. Make sure your motive is not to be seen by others. And he gives examples. Thus, verse 2, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. But truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Then you go down to verses 5 and 6 and he says, when you pray, Make sure that you don't stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners and, and shout out your prayers so that everyone can hear you. Rather, find a room somewhere, a quiet room, a secluded room somewhere. Shut the door and pray. Verses 16 and 17, when you fast, don't rub on your skin sackcloth and ashes and dirt to make yourself look like you're really suffering for Jesus. Instead, take a good bath, get cleaned up, put on your best clothes so that no one even knows that you're fasting. Jesus says, beware. Beware. There's danger here. We need to be careful. Religious things can go south really quick. Religious practice and habits can, can end up not being at all what God wants from us really quick. So when you give, don't, don't sound a trumpet. Don't hold a parade. Do it as discreetly as is possible, in fact, and I love the hyperbole here, and I, uh, there's almost humor in Jesus' words here. In fact, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Try that out. Your right hand's about to put money in the offering plate, and the left hand comes out and says, oh, what are you doing? And the right hand slaps the other hand down. Mind your own business. You know? Jesus is obviously using hyperbole here to make a point. We should, be, we should be so unconcerned about the eyes of others when we give that it's as if we don't even know. One part of us doesn't know what the other part is giving. I don't know if you ever noticed there's a wall on virtually every hospital. And on that wall... There are plaques and there are names, right? And those names are of those people who have given a bunch of money. People giving to have their name somewhere. It's sad how it even happens in churches. 
giving for attention of others. Jesus says, don't do it. And when you pray, let there be no loud voice while standing on street corners. In fact, find a closet somewhere where you can barely even see yourself and then pray. And when you fast, let there be no sackcloth and ashes. Just wash up, get dressed, look perfectly normal and happy, even if your belly is hungry. Our righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees in its design, its motive, its intention. This is so opposite to our human nature, isn't it? It's so opposite to our culture. We live in a world of selfies, a world of self-promotion, a world of let me tell you about me. Let me parade me before your eyes and we create a fake image of ourselves, one in which we look good or look spiritual or look cool or look hip or look wise or look whatever. Everyone just begging, look at me. Look at me. And Jesus tells us that we should do all that we do for the audience of one. How many of you are familiar with that phrase? Carson Wentz has used it for his foundation. He's called his foundation the audience of one. Long before Carson Wentz chose that as a name for his foundation, Oz Guinness used the phrase in his book, The Call, Finding and Fulfilling the Central Purpose of Your Life. And he writes these words, A life lived listening to the decisive call of God is a life lived before one audience that trumps all others the audience of one. The life lived, a life lived listening to the decisive call of God is a life lived before one audience, one audience, and that audience trumps all other audiences. It is the audience of one. It is the audience of God. We do all that we do. We are called to do all that we do. We are to answer the decisive call of God upon our life. And in that answering of that decisive call, we are to live a life that is for the eye of one person alone. The eye of God. The eye of our Father in heaven. Now, that doesn't mean that we are to hide our works. In fact, don't you remember in chapter 5, Jesus says what? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus is not saying to us, that we can't let our good works be seen. What he's saying to us is we can't do our good works to be seen. There is a difference. Letting our good works be seen for the glory of God, yes. Doing our good works to be seen by others for the glory of self, no. No. And I'm here to tell you, I'm here to tell you that as a pastor, this commandment at times can terrify me. I'm standing up in front of 150 people right now. I'd be lying to you 
If I said to you that when I preach or when I counsel or when I care for people, I'm doing it just for the audience of one. I'm very conscious of what people think about me. I'm very conscious of how people look at me. I'm very conscious of reputation. I'm very conscious of approval, disapproval. It grieves me that I don't think I've ever done anything in my whole life, almost 60 years old, that has been done 100% for the audience of God alone. If I'm going to be honest, I have to acknowledge, I have to acknowledge that my motives are never 100% pure. Thank God for Jesus who died for my bad motives. Thank God for Jesus, whose good motives cover my bad motives. Thank God for Jesus. Because otherwise, I'd be a mess. I'd be a wreck. I, it would all be nothing. It would all be nothing. And I don't know about you, but this is the story of my life. Impure heart, impure motives. Always fighting, always fighting. Oh, Lord, I sit in that seat week after week, and there are moments where I'm conscious of pride and self and ambition. And in that seat right there, I have to plead with God for mercy so that somehow or other I can do what I'm called to do for the audience of one, for the audience of one. We need to have the right motive as we seek to practice faithfully with religious devotion our life of faith before him. Finally, we need to be aware of the reward, the reward for sincere religious devotion. We see it time and again here in this this. Sermon, right? There's, there's several times where Jesus says, the Father who sees shall reward. The Father who sees shall reward. God in his infinite kindness and generosity and grace says to us that if we will walk faithfully before him and be sincerely devoted to Him and religiously devoted to Him, if we will give ourselves to sincere, humble prayer, if we will give ourselves to sincere, humble fasting and giving and all the rest, that there is a reward that awaits us. This is amazing. This is amazing. Sometimes we get this reward in this life. Jesus said later on, he says that uh, if you've left father and mother for my sake in the Gospels, you'll receive back a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come. So there's reward here and there's reward there. But let me just, in my close, let me just focus on the reward there. Let's, let's, just, let's just think about the fact that Jesus says to us that if you follow him, you not only get heaven automatic by trusting in Christ, but you also get rewards. You get extras. <laughs> you get extras. None of which is deserved, none of which is really earned, none of which is merited, but all of which is promised. You will have your reward. And I, you know, 
Sometimes those rewards are described as crowns. Sometimes they are described as well done. Sometimes they are described as having cities in heaven to rule over when we get there. There, There's just all different kinds of rewards. But here's the deal. If we sincerely follow Christ, if we sincerely practice our faith for the audience of one, we will gain his reward. What that means is that, see if you can track this, we all know that in heaven we're all going to be completely happy, right? We're all going to be completely happy in heaven. But I'm here to suggest to you, based on the word of God, that we're not all going to be equally happy. Some of us are going to have a greater capacity for joy. Some of us are going to have rewards awaiting us, which clearly implies an extra measure of happiness, an extra measure of joy, an extra measure of well done, an extra measure of whatever it is that God's going to pour out upon us. But there is going to be exceeding happiness. Great will be your reward in heaven. Great will be your reward. I live for that, and I know you do too. And if we have in our hearts a conviction, a persuasion, a certainty that our Father in heaven is going to reward us openly and generously, gladly, then how then shall we live here and now? If this is what he promises, how should we respond? Well, folks, I'm sure that as you hear about religious devotion and prayer and Bible reading and meditation and fasting and solitude and all these things, I'm sure in all of our hearts there's a measure of conviction. In all of our hearts, there's an awareness that we have not done these things as we ought. We have not been as faithful as we should be. So what do you do? What do you do? Can I suggest this? That you trust in the one who did these things perfectly. Trust in the one who did these things perfectly. Have you ever noticed how religious Jesus was? I mean, he was a very religious man. He got circumcised, and he got baptized, and he fasted, and he prayed, and he practiced solitude, and he went out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and, and he instituted the communion meal and, and baptism for us. And, and Jesus was a very religious man. But here's, here's the thing. He was perfectly so. He, he, he never got it wrong. He, he never did any of these things for the audience of others. He always did all these things perfectly for the one audience, the audience of one, for his Father in heaven. Do you know why? So that he could have a perfect righteousness, a perfect religious righteousness, a perfect relationship with God, a perfect practice of relationship with God that could be counted as ours if we trust in him as our Savior. Is your religious record a mess? Yes. His is perfect. 
Believe in Jesus. Trust in him that he died for all your imperfections. And believe and trust in him that all of his perfect religious righteousness can be counted as yours. It will be reckoned as yours. You will be considered perfectly religiously righteous in relationship with God based on your faith in Jesus. So if you're looking at your life and you're saying it's a religious mess, Turn your eye off yourself. Look on to the religious life of Christ. Look on to the righteousness of Christ and put all your trust there. All your trust there. And then confident and secure that God is your Father and Christ is your Redeemer and Christ is your righteousness and Christ is your perfection. Confident and secure in Christ and with God as your Father, then Pursue a life of sincere devotion to him. Become a man or a woman of prayer. Be somebody who, yeah, skip a meal once in a while. Spend some time, some extra time with Jesus. Become a person who says, yes, what I have, what I have received from God belongs to God. So I'm going to give back faithfully and generous to him. Be a person who finds time for solitude. Be a person who somehow in the busyness of life practices a little bit of a Sabbath principle. Take a day of rest. Some quietness before the Lord to be with his people, to enjoy your God. And you will find not that God will love you more, but that you will love him more. Not that God will suddenly approve of you because you're doing all these things, because he's already approved of you in Christ. Um, But oh, he will pour out sweet things upon your heart and life. You will have reward in this life and in the life to come as you sincerely are devoted to him. Let's bow our heads.